All right, it's good to hear you sing, even through the masks. It's still good to, to sing together. Um, on here. Um, we're going to be in Psalms chapter 2 today, but I'm going to read Psalm 1 and 2 because they are connected to each other. We did Psalm 1 a few weeks ago, um, but I want to, uh, to go ahead and show the connection between those two. So if you would open in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, and we'll read all the way through Psalm chapter 2. Um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And now our text for today, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So uh, I don't know if there's any kids here who are into Legos. Is there any? Any? Okay, there's at least one in my family. And Dylan? Okay, good. Awesome. All right, so back in 2018, um, we uh, took a long trip to Washington, D.C. I think there's a picture up on the screen here. And we went to um, the National Mall there, I think is what they call it. And we were in front of the Lincoln Memorial and checking out some cool stuff. And they had these Lego displays, actually. And so all of this cool stuff, and uh, my kids were more excited about the Lego models <laughs> than the big buildings. And so uh, it was pretty cool to see the Lincoln Memorial. And what you have is you have on, the, uh, um, um, on your left, you have the Lincoln Memorial made of Legos. And on the right, you see the Washington Memorial made of Legos in front of the real thing, like a smaller scale model of the big thing, the smaller one represented the, representing the bigger thing. And, uh, and so that picture is really kind of what we have here in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is written by David. It doesn't say that right here. But actually, if you were to jump all the way to Acts chapter 4, um, in fact, actually do that if you are able to jump to Acts chapter 4, because it's super interesting um, how the early church saw this psalm. Um, but this Psalm 2 is written by David, and it's written about David. Um, and David is this king um, that is facing these raging nations around Israel, and God is saying, and he is taking confidence in the fact that he is God's chosen king. But in a sense, David is like the little model, because we're able to see in this psalm that there are, there are allusions past David to a greater king, to a greater son, which is actually pointing to Christ. And so in a sense, David is like the little Lego model that then is standing in front of the big model of Jesus Christ. So this psalm is in its local context about David and his kingship and how God is going to protect and expand his rule and reign, that he is God's chosen king over Israel and that the nations will not infringe on him. Uh, but ultimately, it's about a greater king, King Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 23, um, Peter and John have been preaching the gospel and they got themselves in trouble. And so people are trying to get them to stop preaching in Jerusalem about Jesus. And they say, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Whether it is right to obey man is up to you, but we will not stop speaking. And so they arrest them. 
but then eventually decide to let them go, realizing that they really don't have many charges against them. And so when they gather back up with the church of Jerusalem, verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, listen to this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, then they go on to quote Psalm 2, your servant, he who said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they go on to pray, saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the church at Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when they prayed this prayer, in a sense, showed the biblical understanding of Psalm chapter 2, that it was written by David about David's kingship, but it was about something greater, and it was about Jesus. It was about Jesus, and it was... Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Romans and, you know, all of these folks who had conspired to kill the Messiah. And yet in all of that, God had predestined the entire thing. Every decision that was made was predestined by God to accomplish the good work that had happened. And so these believers take confidence that though the nations are raging, they can have confidence because Jesus is reigning. And so the title of our message today is Keep Raging, or take refuge. And that's going to be the decision in front of us today. Will we continue to join in the world's raging against God? Or will we take refuge in God uh, from his wrath? Those are the two options that are before us today. Now Psalm 1 and 2 are connected and serve as kind of an introduction to the entire book of the Psalms. Um, neither one has an author listed, uh, but there is some interesting connections between them. Psalm 1 is about the individual and the personal the man who walks, um, the man who walks in, in righteousness and the man who walks in wickedness. But Psalm 2 is corporate and global. Why do the nations do this? And there is a king in heaven, and those can take refuge in him. So you have both the individual and the corporate. In Psalm 1, we have the beginning with the word blessed or happy um, in Psalm 1. And we see at the end of Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So it's bookended by the happy life, the blessed life, the saving life of being rightly united to God. The wicked unite in raging and experience in themselves the rage of God and his king. And, um, and so that's uh, uh, the introduction to our psalm here. Uh, it splits up nicely into four parts, four parts um, of three verses. So 12 verses, four parts, four sections of three verses, and it breaks down like this. The nation's rage... In verses 1 through 3. The Lord responds in verses 4 through 6. The Son reigns in verses 7 through 9. And the blessed take refuge in verses 10 through 12. It's a masterfully assembled psalm. Works really good on a PowerPoint. And, uh, and so hopefully you'll be able to see uh, the glory of this psalm. And it's, it's one of those what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls a gigantic psalm. Uh, because it, it, it deals with such massive worldwide themes big cosmic themes that apply to everyone. And so let's start with the first three verses, the nation's rage. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So we start with a question, and it's a rhetorical question. It's like, it, why is this happening? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we see in this section here, the total insanity of mankind. That's really what the question at the beginning is. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Don't they know that their denial of God, their raging against God is futile? Their relentless rebellion makes no sense at all. Have you ever watched the news or looked at your social media feed or, 
or thought about the, the state of your workplace or your school and wondered like, what the heck is this? Why do we do this to each other? Why is it like this? That's the question that's being done here. This is just crazy, the way that people conduct themselves, the way that nations conduct themselves. And verse 1 points that out, that the people's plot in vain. Romans 1, 21 through 23, explains why this is. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. For they became futile in their thinking. In a sense, we became insane. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ever since the garden, we have become corrupted. Our thinking is not right, and the world reflects that. Who are they? You see here the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, right? You see that this is everyone. Everyone is united in this raging against God. We want unity among people in our world, but we have a unity in that we all want to be our own gods, and none of us want to be accountable to the God. They're united, they're relentless in their rebellion, regardless of age, culture, race, prosperity, every human being has this natural disposition of raging against God. And it's insane. That's what the, fir the first question is. It's just insane that we work so hard to try to dethrone God. And here we see the total depravity of mankind as well. The corruption of the fall has affected everything and everyone. There isn't a part of the world that has not been touched by the fall and the curse of the fall. There is not one part of our hearts and our souls that has not been uh, affected by sin and become corrupted. It doesn't mean that we're all as evil as we could possibly be. That's not what we mean by total depravity. But it means that the depravity is in total in that there's nothing. Our genetics, our minds, our world, um, nature has all been corrupted by the fall. And look at how the psalmist stacks up these words to make a point. He uses the word rage and plot and set against and set themselves and take counsel um, they burst and they cast away. So he just layers upon layers of explanation and metaphor to describe what this raging is look like, looks like. The word rage there, actually in, in Hebrew, has the idea of noisil, noisily assemble or violent protesting. So the nations are raging, they are violently protesting God. Plot in verse 1 is the same word as meditate in Psalm 1-2. When it says that the blessed man meditates on the law of God, well, the nations are plotting, they are meditating on how, um, on, on, on the vain attempt to dethrone God. And so you have this connection between one and two, the meditating on God's word and the meditating on how to get myself out of the law of God. You have set themselves in verse two, which means to take your stand, to, to dig your heels in, this is the hill you're gonna die on. They have set themselves in a position of being against God. God. They take counsel together, which means literally they lay a foundation together. They unite. They dig their heels in for a siege. They're willing to stand against God even if it costs them everything. And against Yahweh and against his anointed one, they are standing, they are taking their stand as being against God. And according to Bible scholar Sinclair Ferguson, the word against there is almost exactly the Bible's definition of sin, to be against the Lord. And here we see that they want to burst, they want to pull off with violence their bonds, the shackles, the bonds literally means their shackles around the hands and feet and neck. The rule of God feels like shackles to them. They want to be liberated from God and his law. And they want to cast away, literally hurl off with violence. So each one of those words is just packed with meaning in terms of describing humanity's state and that we are united um, on the political level, on, on individually, in every single way. In, um, in opposition against God. So we see the total insanity of mankind and the total depravity of man uh, that is just so, um, and, you know, Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those who have taken refuge in the Lord, as we'll see at the end, the law of God now becomes a delight, living for him, serving him, aligning our lives with him. The yoke becomes easy and the burden is light. It becomes a joy to please God. But, apart, but before we are regenerated in our natural sinful state, it feels restrictive. These are shackles around the hands and feet that the world is trying to cast off. So the bottom line here is that humanity is united in its hatred of God. 
and is working with all their might to liberate themselves from his oppressive rule. Where did this disposition come from? If this is the state of all humanity, where did this come from? It comes from Genesis 3, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to take a bite of the fruit, tempting them to think that life would be better against God than with God, that somehow they would be missing out if they lived in obedience to God, and the only way is to cast off, how could God make so many rules? In a world full of yes, there was one no, and they could not get past the idea that God would ever say no to them. And so now we live in a world <laughs> full of no's, right? And there's only one yes to be brought back into God, the yes to Jesus. And so we live in a world that's, that we have inherited that disposition from our parents, from Adam and Eve, this disposition of distrust towards God and this desire to be our own God. And if you were to flip the page to Genesis 4, you would see that now it goes raging to now a family who's raging and one brother murders another. And then when God confronts him, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? What's it to you, God? Just blatant disrespect for God and his family. You turn the page to Genesis 5 and 6, and you see a whole humanity that's raging. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No one ever had an unwicked thought. So in just three short chapters, all of humanity is raging against God, consumed with the wickedness. And so God sends a flood and starts over and starts with this one righteous man, a new Adam, so to speak, Noah. And it's not long before we begin to see that this one family begins raging against God as well. And in Genesis 10, we see that all of humanity is uniting and building this tower of Babel up to heaven to overthrow God, to get to heaven on their own. And humanity is again united in their overthrow of God. Genesis 10:32 tells us about the sons of Noah, and their genealogies and their nations. And then in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where God then scatters them, divides them up by nations, gives them different languages. And so now the rebellion is not united, it's all these pockets. And that brings us then to, to Psalm chapter 2, is that the nations are continuing to rage. God divided their unity so that they're now different nations and races and languages and they're in different places, but they still have the same heart disposition of wanting to be their own God. And so that brings us to chapter, or verses 4 through 6, where we see the Lord respond. The Lord responds. The nations rage in verses 1 through 3. The Lord responds in verses 4 through 6. Here's God's perspective. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And here we see two things, four things, actually. G Yahweh is above and amused. And Yahweh is angry and announcing in verses 5 and 6. Yahweh is above and amused. Notice that he is sitting on his throne. The raging of humanity and all the power and corruption hasn't even gotten God out of his chair. He is sitting in his throne. He is not threatened by anything that humanity is doing. And he is laughing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. All the plots of man do not even merit God getting out of his chair. Heaven is not shaken one bit by the evil of humanity. <clears throat> no matter how united and powerful each individual person or each nation thinks they are, God is not moved at all. <clears throat> and he laughs. Their best efforts are laughable. Nothing they do can de-God God. Right? And so he laughs. You can think of a little 18-month-old who uh, so throws a fit on the ground in front of their parents, right? With all their might raging against going to bed. And what does the parent do? The parent laughs because it's ridiculous. Picks them up, puts them in the crib, the little family jail, and leaves them there and lets them cry themselves to sleep, right? That's kind of the idea. How absurd that humanity could think that they could just deny God could just overthrow God. God laughs at the absurdity of it. But he's not laughing because it's cute. Because it says 
he holds them in derision. It makes him angry. He's laughing at how absurd it is, but it's a mocking, it's an angry laughing. And he is angry. And he announces, he makes an announcement. He will speak to them in his fury and terrify them in his, uh, he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. And here's his solution. Here's what he says. Here's the declaration he announces. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You have your kings that you're so impressed by? I have my king, and I'm going to set him on my hill, on my holy hill in Zion. And again, this is talking about David in the immediate, the setting of a king's coronation. Saul was humanity, was Israel's first choice. He was a miserable failure. So God's like, I'll pick the next king. He picks David, and he blesses David. David wasn't perfect by any means, but he was God's choice. God blessed him. God protected him. And, and, and yet it looks forward even further into Jesus. Jesus will be that one king. Um, and so he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's answer to the problem of human evil is to present his son as king and judge. God rejects all the human kings and sets up his own king, a king of kings, a lord of lords, a ruler of rulers. And that brings us then to the third section, the identity of this king. Verses 7 through 9, the son reigns. I will tell of the decree. Now it's the, the son, the king speaking, David at first, but now Jesus. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so there is the announcement of judgment that this king will come and he will set things right. He will vindicate. He will vindicate God's character that has been maligned in the world. And he will be the son that sets things right for the father. And so we see that Yahweh's king is also his son, right? Today you are my son. And we read in John 3 about Jesus being the son, right? That was what he says in John over and over. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. I am the Psalm 2 king who is the son of God made flesh. Um, we see this at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 where heaven opens up uh, at Jesus' baptism and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the transfiguration in Matthew 17 in Mark 9 and Luke 9, we see heaven opening up again. We see Jesus glorified there. And God says, this is my beloved son. Now listen to him. He is the king who has come to rule and to reign and to judge the earth. And we even saw in John 3.16 that we read earlier that God would give his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. So he will both rescue and judge. And look in verse 8. God makes a promise to the Son. He says, ask of me and I will give the nations your heritage. Which speaks of Jesus' intercession. Jesus right now is in heaven interceding for those that trust in him, right? So Jesus asks the Father for the nations. Now, I, I thought this was kind of interesting, is that what kind of inheritance is that? The nations are raging against God and, God's like, and the Father is like, ask me and you can have them. You can have these pentulent children. You can have these, these vile rebels. And Jesus says, I want them. And he comes and he dies to redeem them. Isn't that amazing? These raging nations are the inheritance that Jesus desires. And he comes and dies to purchase back people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So God says, ask of me and I will give the nations to you. And he will break the, rod of, he will break the nations with the rod of iron, but he will also redeem them by his blood and by his death and resurrection. And he will, the nations will become your inheritage, uh, inheritance. So the, ra raging the raging nations belong to the Son now to either destroy or redeem according to his good pleasure. And Yahweh's king is his judgment. It is the Son who will bring the wrath of God to the world. The Son, the reason it is so foolish to rage and rebel is because the decree has already been made. You see it in the past tense here. He is the Son who's reigning now. It's foolish to rage because God has already determined. God didn't go around canvassing the neighborhood looking for votes. He's God. And he says, this is my king. And you either bow to him or you'll be destroyed by him. I'm God. He has unilaterally decided to crown the son king over all. 
As it said in Acts chapter 4, For truly this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of the nations, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. He was and is the ruling king. And we see that at his second coming, Jesus will, he will bring his judgment. He will purge the earth. He came the first time to redeem. He comes the second time to judge. Revelation 1.13 describes it this way. In the midst of the golden lamp stands one like the son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So this is what the second coming will look like. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, quoting Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this son, we tend to think of Jesus as, you know, this really gentle person, and he was, and he is, but he is also the reigning king who will put an end to all human rebellion, and he is patient to give us time to turn from our sin and our rebellion and come to him because he is a safe king. He is a glorious king for those who trust in him, but he is, a de he is something to deal with for those that persist in their rebellion. And so finally, in verses 10 through 12, we see that the blessed take refuge. So here's the lesson. All this theology, all of this warning is to bring us to these last three verses and for us to, to examine our own hearts and our own lives. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we see the call of wisdom and warning in verse 10. Like, just think. Like, just put down your insanity for just a moment. <laughs> just think about your place before this king. You think you're so great in this world, but just take a moment to think of the one that you're going to answer to. Like, just think about that. Be wise. Just be wise in how you conduct yourself, that if you're going to give an account to that king, then maybe you should think about how you're living now. And be warned, O rulers of the earth, he won't miss anything. His judgment will be perfect and right. Nothing will escape him. He sees all. And so there's the call of wisdom and warning. There are two ways to live. You can live righteously or you can live wicked. And then there's the call to reverence and rejoicing in verse 11. Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Only a Christian really knows that combination, right? To know that we are standing before a holy God. And yet to, to find him uh, to serve him, to rejoice in him while trembling, knowing that he is so big and glorious and yet so gracious and kind for those who have put their trust in him. Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. Those seem like strange things to put together, but the Christian knows these things. That God is big and not to be messed with, and yet a loving father who draws us close. John Newton's amazing grace has this line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, my, 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 and grace my fears relieved." So grace teaches me to have this reverent awe of God. And then grace is also the reason why I can now no longer be, I don't have to be afraid of that God anymore. You see? Grace both leads us to a reverence of God and yet also satisfies and gives us hope that we can be in his presence safely. And there's the call to repentance and refuge. Kiss the son. Pay homage to him. This is, this is the idea of coming into the this, is the, this is the rebel, this is the insurrectionist who has been caught and is being brought before the king. And the king has every right to put this insurrectionist, this traitor, to death. 
and the traitor has nothing to do. He's in his shackles. He's in his chains. He's guilty before the king. He should be put to death on the spot. And yet he bows low and kisses the scepter of the king, hoping for mercy. And that's the call here. Kings, realize your place before this great king and pay homage to him. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow. And so why not bow now and kiss the nail-scarred feet of Jesus? And he will give mercy. We're going to bow anyway. So you will either bow at the end before being cast off into hell to face his wrath, or you can bow now and receive mercy. And Jesus himself receives the wrath for us. So what better time than now to bow before and kiss this king in homage and reverence and affection. So a few applications for us today. Number one, keep right perspective. When you see the raging of the world, when you watch the news, when you see the Facebook feeds, when you see the declarations of war, and you see all of these things going on, recall and realize that the God you call Father is still on his throne. And he has set a king in Zion. So you need not fear. The nations will rage. They have been raging. They were raging in Psalm 2. They were raging long before Psalm 2. And now 3,000 years after Psalm 2, the nations are still raging. But God is unmoved. He has set a good king over us all. He will right every wrong. He will extend mercy to all who take refuge in him. So keep perspective when you see the craziness of our world closing in. Know that it, is, it has been this way for a while, and there is a king in heaven who is ruling and reigning, and let's trust in him. Secondly, believe the gospel. Now, this is an awesome psalm because you have the key elements of the gospel all throughout this psalm. You have the entire Christian worldview in 12 verses. We often uh, use the, use the, uh, the uh, God-man-Christ response, and when we share the gospel with someone, we need to tell people about the holy character of God. We need to talk about the sinfulness of man. We need to talk about the sacrifice of Christ and the saving response to that sacrifice. And that's exactly what we have here. In verses 1 through 3, we have the doctrine of man, that all of humanity is raging against God and facing his wrath. And we have the doctrine of God in verses 4 through 6, that he is all-powerful and holy, and he is wrathful against all rebellion. And we have the doctrine of Christ in verses 7 through 9, that being both God and man, he was sent to execute justice and to extend mercy. Through his life and death and resurrection, he fulfills the law of God. He is the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1. But then he also becomes the wrath bearer for those that trust in him. And one day he will come and he will set everything right. And so then in verses 10 through 12, we have response. The doctrine of salvation. Take a hard look at yourself. Would you like to change course in the light of this news? The good news is that the king is offering an, an opportunity for pardon and clemency. He will dismiss all charges of treason against anyone who will lay down their cooperation in this rebellion and humbly submit themselves to King Jesus. All who repent and believe in the Savior, who come to him for refuge, on his mercy will experience rescue. So we have the entire Christian worldview in 12 verses in Psalm chapter 2. Man, the sinfulness of man, the glory and holiness of God, the reign and mercy of Jesus Christ, and the call, the call to repentance and faith in him. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. Everywhere outside of his care is dangerous. He is the only hiding place from his own wrath. If you see him as frightening and try to run away and hide, you will not find a place to hide. There is none. Outside of God's care, there is only wrath. But there is a refuge from the wrath of God, namely God himself. The safest place from the wrath of God, the only safe place, is God. Come to him. Take refuge in him. Hide in the shadow of his wings. This is where we live and serve with joyful trembling. It is terrible and it is wonderful. Jesus himself is the eye of the hurricane, terror all around and total beauty and calm in the center. Here is the sweet fellowship. Here is the quiet, loving communion. Here we speak to him as to a friend. 
Here he ministers to our deepest needs, and I invite you to come. Come and kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. So have you kissed the Son? There are two ways to kiss Christ. Judas kissed Christ in betrayal and mockery and destruction. There's the kiss that's a fake kiss that looks like allegiance to Jesus but is actually a betrayal of Jesus. But there's also the kiss of homage and affection and salvation. So kiss the Son. Come to Him. Bow yourself before Him. Express your affection for Him and receive His mercy. And then lastly, become an ambassador for that King. When we kiss the Son, we are turned from traitors to ambassadors. Our King has given us a commission to go and make disciples of all the raging nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that this great King has commanded. And He is with us always to the end of the age. Acts 2 tells us that when the Spirit came and they were speaking in many languages, that that was a foreshadowing. Peter then in his sermon talks about how this is a foreshadowing of all the nations being drawn to Jesus. In Revelation 7, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne worshiping him. Jesus will have the inheritance of nations. He has requested it from the Father. The Father is giving it to him. And now we have the honor and privilege of inviting people to turn from their raging and to come into this glorious kingdom under this great king and to be reconciled to him. And that's our commission. That's the reason we draw breath now. That's the reason God didn't take us to heaven the moment we believed, is because we are to be ambassadors to the raging nations to tell them about a different king and to invite them to kiss him and be saved. Our king deserves his inheritance of nations, and we are called to partner with him for the rest of our earthly lives to call all nations to lay down their raging and be glad in him. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. Will you commit to finding your place in the mission of God with us, celebrating this great King and calling others to find, um, to find refuge in Him? Our King is indeed worthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm. It captures uh, the entire Christian worldview in such a short, poetic, beautiful, um, intimidating, scary uh, psalm. And Lord, I pray that we would take those final verses to heart, that we would be warned and that we would be wise and that we would serve you with fear and rejoicing, that we would kiss the sun and that we would take refuge in you, Lord, that we would find our refuge in you, that we would not find our refuge in our intellect or our finances or our family or our intelligence or uh, in our government or in our military, like uh, we would find no refuge in anything but Christ himself. So Lord, make us the kind of people who don't participate in the raging of the world and are not shaken by it in such a way that we don't still with confidence proclaim the glory of King Jesus, who has already come to establish his kingdom, and we get to be a part of that. Lord, I pray that we would turn and and come near and, and kiss the Son and be brought into his kingdom that we would be ambassadors, ambassadors for that king because he is worthy. So Lord, we pray that you would claim all the nations for yourself and use us in whatever way that you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me? Let the glory of the Lord forever be our joy. May redemption be the theme of our song. For by grace we have been saved, and by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that Christ is come. Oh, let the nations be glad. People rejoice for salvation belongs to our God. And let the whole earth be filled with the praises of the Lord, for salvation belongs to our God. Let the nations be glad. Through the ages gone before, through the
the trials and the sword many saints and martyrs conquered though they died still we holding out the cross crossing ocean suffering loss shall endure all things to win the crown of life oh let the nations be glad let the people rejoice for salvation belongs to our God and let the whole earth be filled with the praises of the Lord for salvation belongs to our God let the nations be glad as your holy church goes forth in the holy spirit's power with the glories of the gospel to exclaim now we pray your kingdom come and we pray your will be done for the honor and the glory of your name oh let the nations be glad let the people rejoice for salvation belongs to our God and let the whole earth be filled with the praises of the Lord for salvation belongs to our God oh let the nations be glad and let the people rejoice for salvation belongs to our God and let the whole earth be filled with the praises of the Lord for salvation belongs to our God let the nations be glad you may sit Okay, we like to take a few minutes at the end to, uh, to respond to some questions if there are any. You could text them in to 97000 if you've already subscribed. That's an easy way to get them in. Or we actually, if you want to ask it out loud as well, Justin will uh, help me out with that. So yeah. Good morning, Justin. Good morning. Uh, thank you for preaching. Uh, I thought that you did a really good job of... Uh, showing the connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So I'm not sure that I have a ton of my own questions. Uh, I was actually struggling to come up with some. felt like you got pretty much everything. So some of these might seem a little bit redundant. Sure. Um, I guess one thing that sort of stood out to me is, um, you know, you get this picture of, if you read Psalm 2, it does feel a little bit like there's not a ton of grace in Psalm 2, at least on the surface. Maybe it's because the smashing people comes across so strongly. Yeah. And uh, it says that the son in verse 12 is quickly angered, which, you know, in other parts of the Bible, it says that God is slow to anger. So mm -hmm. uh, is the son somehow different from God? Or wh why is it? I don't, the quick to anger sounds a little bit just uh, different. So I guess my question is, yeah. why does the anger side seem to come out more strongly because you emphasize the gospel as well in the psalm so yeah um yeah i don't know i think that you know david is uh, he's speaking first and foremost about himself but then you're obviously it's a bigger thing so i think david you know is is um is kind of recounting how god will god will protect god will avenge and so we have that part in different texts of scripture kind of highlight different characteristics of God and here we get the uh, the idea that his he he is big and holy and mm -hmm. you know so I, I kind of connected a little bit to that Isaiah 6 where even the seraphim cover their faces and just cry out holy 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 and Isaiah the moment he's in in front of God and you know he's a prophet like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know if anyone you know maybe would have the credentials to be able to stand before God and he says immediately woe to me I'm a man of unclean lips I'm done undone 
which literally means I'm going to be pulled apart by the holiness of God. So we do have some texts there. Um, uh, I think that there's, there's meant to be, um, this text is meant to be humbling, especially to the proud. Mm-hmm. You know, the nations are raging because they really think that they have a lot of power and influence. Mm-hmm. They think that they really can just kind of write God off or redefine what God has said. And, um, you know, this is a, a warning that, um, that God will not tolerate that. And I think the kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled is meant to, to um, cultivate an urgency. Don't okay. delay. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know how much time you have before you're going to be facing mm-hmm. this son face to face so the idea of kind of like i'll just wait till my deathbed to get right with jesus is foolish because you don't know when that will come so i think it's the idea of urgency his wrath is quickly kindled you may be facing it far sooner than you think Mm -hmm. so um stop your delay so yeah i don't know if that helps at all yeah yeah Um, i think so yeah that's Um, definitely the theme of this psalm is like god is big yeah and holy yeah and relentless yeah yeah that's good um so uh one question about you pointed out that sort of psalm one is more at sort of the individual level Mm -hmm. and then sort of psalm two is at this kind of cosmic sort of international level Mm -hmm. um so in what sense are some of the aspects of psalm two sort of to be applied to our lives i'm thinking particularly of what does it look like at a normal person's level you know we're not i don't think anyone here is running any countries that i know of uh so like for us to serve the lord with fear and and rejoice and trembling is this like is that is this kind of like are we supposed to enjoy god or or, yeah i guess sorry that's maybe yeah i yeah i think so okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that it's you know yeah psalm one definitely is dealing on the individual side that there comes blessing with being rightly related to God and there's going to be destruction for those that throw off God and that's not just at the individual level that can be that's a at the corporate level too that there are whole nations that are organized and there's kings who think they're kind of above above accountability and I think this psalm is just reminding like you know every human being's in the same boat and I think the fact that he says the nations rage means that it's like it's all of us Mm -hmm. um uh, in that sense, there is no Christian nation in the sense that every one of them is raging against God mm-hmm. in some way or at some point, right? Like even yeah. Israel, even Israel was um, was punished by God. So, um, yeah, so I think it's the no one's exempt from being accountable to God, no matter how powerful or how much victory they seem to be getting in this world. They will be accountable to God. And I think that trickles down to every individual. So yeah. I think we can take it to cart individually, but also take comfort that those that seem untouchable above us are not untouchable to God. Okay, yeah. So. That's good. Um, Is there any questions? Yeah, there's one that came in. Uh, what does kissing the sun look like in our life today? Um, I think the picture there is like of, of coronation, of coming before the king and, and paying homage to him. So it's, I think what that looks like is probably on a daily basis submitting ourselves to God. Christ, whatever it is you have for me today, I'm your servant today. So I think it's reorienting our mind and heart to be always in submission to the king and kind of seeing ourselves as his, his daily servants. Like you can just imagine mm-hmm. a king who has his daily attendants every day that do things for him. And when he gives an order, they do it. When he has an announcement to make, he has people that, that take care of him. And so I think the fact that we're brought into the presence of the king and we now abide with the king uh, we now see his commands as good, and and so we're willing to pay homage to him. Yeah. So, so I think it's a daily submitting ourselves to him, knowing that he has our good in mind, and that he, yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's good, and I think I do think that you have to take the psalm, the psalm one and psalm two together to kind of get the whole picture of what does it look like. Yeah, that's good. Um, so meditating on God's word day and night. Yeah. I want to know what the King says. Yeah. Exactly. I want to do what the King says. Yeah. Well, how do we do that? We do that by reading His word, by meditating yeah. on it. Yeah. And then we become like that tree planted by streams of water. We, we flourish in our own life as we serve yeah. him. Yeah. One other thought on that is that in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2, there's this sense that there's a collective that is pushing against the ways of God. And mm-hmm. in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, there's kind of the singular individual who's yeah. standing or walking with God's word. 
Yeah. And I think that there is also kind of the implication that sometimes you have to go against the stream um, mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to follow God. Yeah, and in Psalm 1, it talks about the, the congregation of the righteous. So there will be this gathering, this, this corporate nature of the righteous. Mm -hmm. And then in Psalm 2, we see that there's the congregation of humanity raging yeah. against God. So yeah. there's two, two peoples, two nations, two kingdoms. Mm -hmm. One that is united under God, serving God, enjoying God. One that's hating God. And so there's two ways to live, but there's also two kings, two kingdoms to live in. Mm -hmm. And so both of them are calling us to, yeah. you know, to be the blessed man, be the, be, the, be the happy individual that delights in God, and then also be the one who finds refuge in, yeah. in him. So yeah. that's good. Any questions out here? Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you. Big Psalm. Yep. Yeah. It was good. Cool. All right. So um, we're taking a little break from the testimonies right now. I didn't. Um, so we will uh, go ahead and close out with our some announcements and a benediction. I'll just remind you of a few of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the service. If I can find my piece of paper where they're written down. Um, just a few things to remember. Um, if you want to grab one of those conscience books on the way out, you're certainly welcome to do that. Um, we will start that next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. via Zoom if you want to discuss chapter one together with us. Um, I think it's going to be a really helpful book. Family meeting for those of you that are members next Sunday night, 6 p.m. at the South Canyon Baptist Gym. We'll be spread out there and we'll uh, handle some things there. It'll be a shorter meeting, but it'll be good. And then if you're in fifth through 12th grade and want to go Frisbee golfing, that's Monday, the 29th of June. And then membership matters if you're interested in engaging in the membership process. Let me know that. I'll send you the information. We'll begin that process together. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. So if you would please stand for our benediction. A benediction is just a blessing from God's word to you as you depart. Uh, please uh, remember that as you, as you leave, you're, you're welcome to, to kind of interact outside, keep the social distancing. We're supposed to do that and keep our masks on while in the building. Um, but it's uh, hopefully nice outside. You could fellowship a little more out there as well. So let's uh, just kind of keep that in mind. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>